Um, good morning. My name is Michael. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I don't know, Charlie's anxious, mad, sad, glad, afraid, ashamed. I'm feeling anxious right now. Um, but I'm also very glad to be here. Uh, my therapeutic goal today was to share my story with you so that I can remember the places that I've been. Uh, my family goal is to do this well so it can reach everybody here. And so with that, my personal goal is to just try to stay out of the way. It's been 258 days since my last drink. I'm grateful to have the chance to talk to you today. I've got a few things I do want to say. And then, as my sponsor advised me, I'd really like to help. So please, if there are questions you haven't thought of to ask yet or been willing to ask, please ask me and I'll do the best I can to be honest and answer them. I came to the Harrington Recovery Center on October 31st, 2004, Halloween, uh, because I couldn't live the way that I'd been living, honestly. I didn't want to die. And like many of us on this part of the path, death was pretty close. That sounds kind of harsh in the light of a nice Saturday morning, but that was the reality of what was going on. That's what it took for me to decide to go to any length to get better. My disease and my dance with it, and I was a willing participant, um, had blinded me to the truth. I mean, I was in the classic state of denial. You know, the fact that I was human, that I was flawed, that I had this disease, that I didn't know how to do anything about it, was unacceptable to me. And so my conscious mind blocked it. It's, it's hard for me to see now, except through the other people that I try to talk to and that I try to work with. And I see them doing the same thing. I was sick with this disease. I was also very defiant. Um, my life was filled with lies because I was afraid, because I was resentful, and at the bottom of it all was a lot of self-pity. Why did this have to happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? Why was I back in yet another treatment center? I was trapped, that's why, because I was quite literally beyond human help. Psychologists had tried, doctors had tried, family members had tried, even therapy had a pretty reputable treatment institution tried and it didn't work because I didn't know what to do and I didn't know why to, how to find the path that would lead me out of that quicksand that I was caught in. My background is quite normal. Um, I'm the eldest of uh, what were three boys born to my parents. Uh, lived in the suburbs of Milwaukee, went to schools. I mean, you know, it was all very nice. Uh, my parents' only sin was in loving me and in convincing me that you know, whatever I wanted to do, I could achieve. If I worked hard enough, if I did the right things, it would all, it would all work out. Um, as I said, I had two younger brothers, um, three years younger and nine years younger. Um, they were vibrant. They were very much alive. Um, and they very much looked up to me. You know, and, and I had all the advantages, all the schools, all the economics. We played tennis. We swam. I mean, it was, there was nothing tragic about the way I grew up. But I was never satisfied with that. I was never grateful for that because there was always something missing. I never quite knew what it was, but something, something was missing. Something, there was some itch I couldn't scratch that kept me feeling uncomfortable. Um, 
you know, the first time that went away was what I'll call my first real spiritual experience, an experience dramatic enough that it changed the way I looked at life. Uh, I was 15 years old, nervous. We just moved to a new high school, and there was a school of 450 kids as opposed to 30, and you know, I wasn't... I wasn't a jock, I wasn't a greaser, I wasn't any of the cliques, I didn't know what to do. But I was at this beer party. And they said, here, have a couple of, have a beer. And I had a beer, and people started talking to me. And, you know, I got calmer. I started relaxing. There's some people nodding their head out there. It's happened to them, too. Just start relaxing, and you start nodding. And, and that's what the society lets alcohol do. Um, but it went way deeper than that for me, because that was the only way that I turned off that drive. That's the only way to scratch that itch. It's the only way it stopped. All of a sudden, for a little while, everything was okay. So armed with that information and, and actually supported by society. You know, drive down the road. Drink this, buy this, do this. Bars, restaurants, that's, you know, it's what people do. That's the drug that society has said is okay. So I'm 15, what do I know? It's got to be okay. So I went off into life and I went to... Got out of high school okay, I went into the right college, went to graduate school, got good grades, got a good job, uh, married the girl next door, storybook tale. 23 years we've been married, we've known each other longer than we didn't. Uh, two beautiful daughters, 14 and 11, young, smart, vibrant, full of life. I mean, you know, dogs, horses, cats. Career. I was a corporate investment banker, you know, guy with the suspenders and, and the planes and the big deals and all that jazz. I was in control of my life. I was doing all the right things, except, you know, when it didn't go right, then I had to use the tool I had to escape, because I never learned along the way how to cope with it any other way than to just go escape. So I'd go crawl off onto this little island by myself with friends. Didn't matter, I could be in a crowd of people and be off by myself. It was always alcohol that brought me there. I mean, in college, you know, you try drugs in college. At least that was the norm when I went. So I, I don't differentiate between the drug I use that society allowed and the drugs that other people fall victim to. I think we're all heading for the same place. It's just a question of which, which way we choose to get there. And some roads take you to where I got a little quicker than others. Some of these chemicals will do that. But for me, it was always the same objective, you know. And, and my parents were very proud of me. I mean, on the outside, I looked good. You know, the screen that I put up and, and then the life I projected was fine. When I came in here, the one most striking thing about the impact letters I received from my family and friends was that they didn't really know what I had been living with this whole time. It never showed. I never let them in deep enough. I was always able to control it. And besides, you know, everybody will forgive it if you have too much to drink once in a while. And you hide the drugs, and your friends hide them for you. And so that all gets protected across. My parents never knew any of that. But it was the same thing. It all looked good. Cars, houses, horses, career, money, country clubs, all that jazz. I mean, it's a wonderful life. As I look at it now, I can't believe that it didn't satisfy, but it didn't. Because like in The Wizard of Oz, you know, there was something really different going on behind the curtain. And, um, and that was my disease. I just needed escape. I drank daily. They asked me 
do you drink every day? I'm like, oh my God, since high school, what are you talking about? Do you drink coffee every day, Charlie? I asked him. He said, yeah, but we got different things going on with that. It's not having the same effect, or I'd have to do something about it. A daily escape to stay in the world. That's what I had to have to keep my grip on the planet, to soothe, I mean, all that stuff. And there really were no consequences. Nothing too severe. I didn't have even a DUI or the threat of one until 2003. So for 27 years, nothing. Oh, bad days at work. Fights, arguments. Well, dented the cars a few times. Embarrassed my family once or twice. Scared a mom whose um, kid I was playing with at the airport in Minneapolis. I was coming home, delayed flight, you know, when you're in airports, you drink. And I drank and started playing with this kid and, and scared the kid's mom because I was kind of dancing around and I wasn't that stable. But, I, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't look from the inside like what it looked like from the outside. So I didn't see it because, again, this denial thing was really working. And it was well supported. I wrote down a Japanese saying that really describes the turning point for me, which goes, you know, the man takes a drink, then the drink takes the drink, and then the drink takes the man, and that's what happened to me. Somewhere along the line, I, I gave up trying to figure out exactly where, you know, it took over. When this carefully constructed world that I'd used to say I'm okay cracked, I cratered. Because I'd always pointed to the job and I'd always looked at the deals and the clients and my family and the money and all that stuff and said, I've got to be okay because this is all here. Alcoholics don't, don't look like this. Yeah, they do. I did. I, um, I don't know what role my disease and my behavior played in this, but it had some role. I just haven't taken the time to identify it. Um, I was released in a corporate downsizing, which I had financed for many, many years, but now it's finally happened to us. And um, in essence, told to leave a business that I built in over 15 years. That was me. I didn't have any other life outside that. A little room left for family, you know, kind of carved that out. But that was that was what I looked to as, as proof that I was okay. And when that left, when I lost that. I had nothing else. It's like one of these sinkholes that you read about in California. Something shifts and all of a sudden you got a whole crater that goes for miles down. And I fell into it. You know, I can skip the rest of the stuff. I mean, the war stories, the parties, the drinking. I mean, all those things that I heard never really did much for me. They didn't keep me sober. And they were pretty scary. They're not going to mean much to you. But... I will talk to you about some of the events that led up to my decision to come and finally honestly seek help. Um, I had to give up, I don't know if it was plan B, I think I was on plan Z in terms of another career search. This didn't work, that didn't work, the other didn't work. I mean, it was two years in and I still couldn't find anything that I wanted to do or that somebody would let me do. And the fact that I was alcoholic and a little bit off that people could sense that even if they couldn't put their finger on it never occurred to me. I just thought, you know, there was something wrong. So I I don't know what I was going to do. 
and uh, I just took the summer off. I got about a week into that summer break because I'd been drinking pretty much that whole week. And, uh, you know, finally, as these things will do, boiled out into the open. Uh, my wife found me passed out down the basement uh, Friday afternoon after I came home from downtown trying to get a job, working with the consultants. And the paramedics came. She couldn't arouse me. Have you been drinking, sir? Oh, no, not me. I don't drink. Speed up the story, I ended up surprising the doctors. We were having this conversation. He was trying to test lucidity and, and you know where I was. And I was doing pretty well with my name and my address and social security number and things like that. And then the report came with a blood alcohol content. He looked at me and says, well, congratulations. I was like, well, I'm feeling pretty proud of myself. What for? He says, you actually have the second highest blood alcohol content we've ever recorded here. You shouldn't even be talking to me. I was like, well, see, I can handle my liquor. I always could. I was the guy that was the, the driver. I was the one who would take care of it. He says, but actually, in a way, you won. You know why? Because that is the highest blood alcohol content we've ever seen that lived. First guy didn't walk out of there. And I did what anybody sensibly would do, confronted with the fact that, you know, what am I supposed to say? I don't drink, honey? That I'm okay? No, I said, I need help. I don't know how to stop. And I didn't. And so off I went. Um, to another institution, internationally renowned. This was the place. Did the research, did the homework. This is where we fix people. You'll recognize the name if I were to give it. But, you know, three days of detox up to the plane. I got up there and, and um, they proceeded to educate me about alcohol. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that I really, really needed to be careful about my drinking. You know? They talked about surrender, and I said, yeah, I'll surrender. I, uh, but, you know, I'm a banker. I'm, I carefully negotiated the terms of my surrender. I had control over it. I had my rules. And, um, and yet a week before I left, or ten days before I left, I knew I was going to drink. I knew I was going to drink at the airport before I got out of Minneapolis. And that calmed me. I was, I was calm then. My counselors chalked it up to finally surrendering, to, to getting in touch with my spirituality. And that's what they wanted. So, hey, here's the lift service. I'm an expert. Investment bankers are the only people I know that can lie to you, get caught, switch lies in midstream, and still think they've got you with them. And, and most of the time they do. It's fascinating. Um, so all that... 28 days away from my folks, whatever amount of money, got me a coffee cup um, and 87 minutes of sobriety. On a, now, if you subtract out the drive time to the airport, that's pretty expensive because it was at least an hour drive. And so we go back home. I'm cured. Honey, I'm back. Well, God sort of saw that and he turned the page. He said, okay, chapter two. And I got back and I went to the people they recommend. I go see the AA people that I, I work with today. I get a lot of teasing about showing up for that first meeting and trying to stumble through how it works and feeding pretzels, you know, the kind you get at the bar, the little ones that are wrapped in little cellophane deals to their dog. You don't get those anywhere else. They don't sell those except at restaurant supplies. So everybody knew I'd been at the bar on the way over. Except me, well, I knew I wasn't going to confess. 
Anyway, speed up that story, um, I went over 0.403 more times in the next week. Um, I went through three detoxes in seven days, so I was literally coming out and back in in a 24-hour cycle. Um, and real anger came out, because not only was I not supposed to drink anymore, not only had we gone through this whole thing about getting help, and for me to be gone 30 days from my family was incredible. That's never happened. Um, I couldn't stop. And I couldn't let anybody see that. I mean, my wife found the bottles. Down in the attic, there's a sump pump thing, and it's got the ceiling, and I was just tossing by the end, that little half pint of plastic, just throwing them over the top. I'll clean them out later, because I'd lost track of you know, my, my normal process, which is you gather them and you drop them off in various dumpsters, so nobody knows you're drinking. Going out to a liquor store, this is Tuesday, this is Wednesday, so Thursday and Friday I'd mix up it, so nobody would know. She found all those and scared the hell out of her. She looked up and saw a sea of them. It was out in the open, and I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't stop. My brother came up from Houston to try to help my family deal with this, um, to try to take care of the kids while you know Susan tried to reach me somehow. And we ended up fighting and yelling. I mean, it was just it was real anger, and it was unbridled, and it was the likes of which I'd never seen before, and hopefully I'll never see again. Well, I'll read you a little bit later about what brought me to the decision, but I woke up on the 17th of October in the Good Shepherd Hospital, and it was like Groundhog Day. Didn't I just leave here? I had the day before. And uh, I had no idea what had happened. Literally. So it was the first decision there was to get help. My wife asked me to let her know what... Um, what I was planning on doing, what my plan was, because if I, my plan was, if my decision was to keep drinking, she had to make her plans. And she also was curious to know where I was going to stay, because I wasn't coming home. And that day I spent talking to people and, and reaching out, and, and you know, there wasn't anything anybody told me that gave me the impression there was anything else on the planet I should be doing but figuring out how to get better. We don't care what you do. Don't go home. Don't worry about your business. Don't worry about your job search. Don't worry about, don't worry about anything. Figure out how to get better and figure out where to go. Uh, our horse trainer took me in. I cleaned stables and tack and took horses out for two weeks. Went to meetings and white-knuckled it through all that because um, I was scared to death. I wouldn't have made it very far on that, but that's how I made it through the first two weeks. That was my first set of decisions. Um, and I came up here and they explained to me how it works, really. I mean, I'd read it all that time, but I never understood it. And they told me that, you know, you got to start with being honest. And one afternoon in desperation, I said, okay, I'm wandering around out by the fire pit and, and just kind of walking. I said, all right, I'll try it. And I went back that weekend to write up in my autobiography process. You know, did I even remember all the stuff I'd done? and all the pain that it cost and all the hurt. And the fact of the matter was, I spent all weekend doing it. When I talked to my wife about it Sunday night, she said, you forgot this one. I think you misfiled that one. I couldn't do it. I had to have help to do that. And that was how that came forward. And then from then on, it really was a process. So a series of little decisions. You know, they, teach, they taught me and changed management that if you just turn a little bit, 
one at a time, every day, eventually you'll move a great distance and, and go off in another direction. And that's what it took for me. The willingness to start, to be honest, and then just like one degree a day. Um, but turning the decision over was the big part. Finally, there came another reminder of what really happens on the... Hmm. I was on my way to your group. Excuse me. And I got a phone call from Houston. Uh, my brother Mark was in the hospital. Um, his liver had failed. Um, over the course of the next two days, his liver shut down, his kidneys shut down, his heart stopped, and he died as a direct result of untreated alcoholism. You know, you've all seen ER. Yeah, that was it. Three years and three days, my junior. And he came up to help me. So he did. You know, at that point, you just... You recognize that you can't do it. I recognized I needed help, and I couldn't find anywhere to turn but where Charlie and Wendy and Deb pointed me. And I turned that decision of whether or not I could drink or not over to God and said, you know what? I hear you. I don't know what else you're going to do, but hit me next, and then it'll be too late. See, this point is clear. I was going to quit drinking. The defiance was going to be beaten out of me. The question was whether I was going to be alive at the end of it. And so I made the decision. And it stuck. I was back over a weekend and found a bottle of rumple mints hidden away in one of my little stashes that Susan had missed. And I sat there and I looked at it. <clears throat> Perfect situation, just enough to get a little high. Nobody was going to know. We were off to a party. I wasn't going back to Hazel until the next day. There was no way anybody was going to catch me. And, and Wendy had talked to me about January 6th and in the 24-hour in the book, this is the most important thing in my life is not drinking. And I read that. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't get me there. <clears throat> So I read January 7th and it asked me the question, did I turn this decision over or not? And I didn't want to lose what I was enjoying, which was being on the path back to the world. Um, so I took the bottle and gave it to my wife and said, you need to dump this out. And that was the last time I came close. That was the last time I came close. The work, you know, honesty, accountability, letting go of that anchor that I was swimming with. I had all these things that I held on to that I had to have that I had to control. And until I let go of those, I couldn't swim. They were dragging me down. You know, you can always go back and pick that stuff up. For those of you here doing some work, just let them go. Check them at the door. You can always go back and select them later. It worked for me. The process, you know, God put so many angels in my path, I can't even count them. These people here, um, I trusted them with my life. Um, they delivered for me and my family, my sponsors. You know, they know the way. They know the path. They've been there. I didn't. I already admitted that, and I turned that over, and step by step, you know, I look back now, and I'm out of the quicksand. The quicksand is back there, and I'm not going back to it because I don't have to. The spiritual steps they work you through, the 12 steps, you know, will lead, well, they led me to God. Um... And I found them in spite of myself. 
Step one, honesty. Step two, hope. Third step is faith. Fourth is courage. Boy, that took courage to write down and really look at what I was doing and why I was doing it. Fifth step, integrity. Taking that out, letting somebody see it. Willingness to change. Humility in the face of what I needed to change. Brotherly love. Fixing my relations with the world, with the people I'd harmed. Justice, making amends. Perseverance. I mean, you've got to keep going. I have to. Connecting spiritually and, and, and doing what I'm lucky to do today, which is give back a little bit and do some service. I mean, those 12 steps. That's it. That's the program. That's the blueprint. When all else fails, read the directions. And when I started reading the directions honestly and following it, it got better. You know, you take the drugs and alcohol out of somebody and you put God in his place. You can achieve some pretty interesting turnarounds. It doesn't have to be that bad, but you know, this is the real deal. This disease is the real deal. And people die from this. You know, there's only three outcomes. You're going to get locked up. You're going to get covered up or you're going to get sobered up. And, you know, my experience is that that's true. My dad's mom died of alcoholism in 1990. She stepped off the balcony. My brother Jimmy died of alcoholism. My cousin Jimmy, excuse me. Just, just He'd been through something like 13 treatment centers and never got it. He always said, I can handle this. You go over to the, uh, the Lake Club, Conewalk Lake Club, you'll see his name on the door next to the library on a plaque. That's what his, his father put there in his memory. No accidents here. The day after I tried to be honest and start actually working on it was the first day I went in there and I saw that. I saw where my cousin had been and what had happened to him and the choice that I was presented. Little signs along the way. My brother Kenneth died. I told you about my brother Mark. I mean, it's no joke. It's no joke and it hurts. And it hurts the family most because at the end of the day, you know, <clears throat> it's my brother's wife that still is in pain on that. He's gone. She's living on with that and, and looking back to see what she did, what she could have done, what she didn't do, what, what, did she fail? What was that all about? I've got a, a letter that was written to me by my daughter when I was here and this sort of sums up what happened to my family. Debbie Adamus asked me to write you a letter regarding my relationship with you. She's 14. As much as I do not do as much as I do not want to do this, I'm going to since it's supposed to help you get better. When you made the selfish decision to keep drinking or even to start drinking, you thought it was only hurting you, but it wasn't. It was hurting everyone. Not just mom, Lee and I, but also mom's side of the family. I'm not too sure about your side. Neither am I. But I do know that Uncle Mark and Aunt Diana want you to get better. And they're also our friends. The Simons have been with us every step of the way. My friends in general have been unbelievably helpful and supportive. One of the things Mom suggested I write about is things I remember about your drinking. What you did while you were drinking. I didn't realize that you were drinking until that Thursday night when you passed out downstairs and I spent the weekend with the Simons. <clears throat> I thought you'd be okay after you went to treatment. A lot of people did, but not even a week after you got back, you started drinking again. A week! 
You've been away from your family for a month, promising them to get better, and you couldn't go a week without drinking. We spent a lot of time talking about that since. I don't know what else to do. Speed up the story. I'll skip down some of it. We got in the car and we went off to go pick up some air and pick up some things. I needed to, to buy some um, a couple things at hardware store for things I'd broken that week and wanted to fix. That was what I told everybody. The reality was I was out of booze. And, and my wife wouldn't trust me with the keys unless she thought I was going to go out and drink and then try to drive back. So, you know, she took, she had to take Aaron with me. Okay. On the way there, we stopped at the gas station. You wouldn't let me go in with you. I insisted, but you wouldn't let me go in. I trusted you. I trusted you not to buy something to drink. You were fine in Home Depot, but then we got in the car. You were driving back home, and you locked your eyes on the wheel and were swerving side to side. You were also muttering stuff I couldn't understand. You didn't know where you were going. You wanted to keep going, we went to the bank. I was able to help you turn into it, but not successfully. We were in the ditch by the side of the road. I told you just to stay there, and I'd call Uncle Mark to come and get us, but you floored it across the highway. If that car hadn't slowed down, it would have rammed right into my side of the car. I could have died because of your selfish mistakes. I drove the car back from Carlson's old house, which is like a quarter of a mile, because you had passed out completely. When I got home, I ran and got, well, she didn't finish that sentence. I hope you know that I plan never to get into a car while you're driving. Again. Ever. I don't care if you've been sober for 20 years. I'm not doing that again. It's funny, when I was at the Simons for the first time, Heidi told me that I shouldn't get into a car with you until you've been sober for a while. It's going to take a long time for me to forgive you for that. You know that I love you very much and I want you to get better, but I'm so mad at you for screwing up our family. I haven't been able to sleep since the car incident, or at least not as well as I'd like to. For a few weeks after that, every time I closed my eyes, I saw you with your arms locked at the steering wheel. My sister isn't quite sure what's going on. I think she's really frustrated. Mom is mom. She's been amazing and helpful and supportive, even after you screwed up again. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, and I was fine. That's my experience. My strength now is is that I was able to change with God's help and the help of the people that kept me accountable to staying on that path of things I lived with. I don't live with lies anymore. I live with the truth as much as I can. I don't live with fear anymore. I live with faith as much as I can every day. Instead of resentment, I work for acceptance. And instead of self-pity, I'm grateful for what I have. You know, what you feed grows. And I was feeding all the wrong stuff. This was what I saw earlier. This feeling, this ease and contentment that the drink gave me that time at the beer party in high school didn't last. This is lasting. This is what I was looking for. You know, God didn't make this world wrong. He didn't make it so I couldn't survive in here. It works. I was the one making the bad choices. I chose attitudes. I chose actions that just, it's just wrong. You know, and I'll kind of forgive myself for doing that. 
I'll forgive myself more for when I didn't know, but it's hard to forgive myself for after that information was given to me and I chose not to act on it. That was a choice. Because I knew there was a different way. That's not ignorance anymore. That wasn't a default option anymore. That was a decision. And I needed to make the right one. On 10-17, I started to choose differently. I chose hope and, I, and to move that one degree every day and it got better. Um, my hope is that though of you, those of you who are still suffering from this, who haven't made a decision, take a good look at that. Because it's important. Because only you can make it. Nobody else can. Charlie can't help you do it. Your parents can't help you do it. Your wife can't help you do it. Your kids can't help you do it. Nobody can help you do it. You have to do it. That's the deal. The addiction is between the addict and God. You have to figure out how to live here. The family members, I hope you realize that. And face it honestly, because that's the hardest piece of this whole deal. It's maddening. We're working with some people now, and I'm watching myself go through what I did. And I'm on the other side trying to help, and what his family's going through is terrible, because they're still struggling to try to realize that he's going to do what he's going to do. And that they need to, you know, be supportive, love him, but... They have their lives they have to live. And that's that's tough stuff. But it goes back to the stuff in the back of the blue book. I mean, you know, A, we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power, that's all of us, could relieve our alcoholism and that God could and would if he were sought. You know, for me, it's been kind of like the prodigal son parable. I mean, I came back and when I woke up, everything was still there. My family was still there, find a new career. You know, that's not always the case, so I consider myself to be very lucky, and I wish everybody that same luck. i got two things I'd like to share with you, and then I'll ask you for some questions. This was the best description I ever heard of what my decision was like. When we walk to the edge of all of the light that we have and take that final step into the darkness of the unknown, we must believe one of two things. Either there will be something solid for us to stand on or we will be taught to fly. Well, I'm here to tell you, believe both of them. Because this place is something solid to stand on. You can regroup here. You can make mistakes. You can figure it out. You can do the work here. Um, and you'll learn to fly. I've got one more little recent note. Um, my daughter wrote, I wanted to share. Um, and this kind of goes to the promises. Um, this is, this, uh, so to set the scene, it's Friday, June 3rd, it's 10.20 in the morning. I'm in a middle school gymnasium. It's eighth grade recognition ceremonies. There's a class of about, I don't know, about 150. There's probably, what, 700 people in the, in the, in the gym, all stacked up. <laughs> I'm up on the bleachers, and I've sat on some gum. I mean, those pants are ruined. I'm just stuck. I couldn't get up. It's hilarious. You know, and I'm fussing with that and I'm trying like, you know, just it doesn't matter. Just, you know, let it go. As opposed to, you know, that could have triggered an explosion in the old days. Um, anyways, through the course of the program, the principal is kind of trying to put some um, life into the program. He's reading little notes, you know, from the eighth grade class that they wrote over the last week to like their teachers or the janitors or their friends. And, and um, you know, it's kind of neat. And I'm, I'm kind of listening, and, and this comes over the loudspeaker. Dad, I'm glad you're here today. Huh, excuse me. 
I believe in you. I trust you. Love, Aaron. I mean, that's all the emotions in the world in about 16 words. Thanks for letting me share.